was picking up my kids from daycare on a beautiful day, much like today, over 30 years ago in the summer of 1984. Life was good. The kids were happy and healthy. I had a rewarding job as an attorney, and our family was active at First Universalist Church. I had joined the Board of Trustees that July and was looking forward to serving in that role. Our daughter, Christiana, was five that summer. Her brother, Andrew, was two. They had been in the same daycare home for five years. I loved our daycare family. Khadijah had grown up on a farm like me and was a gentle, calm presence. Her African-American husband, Ahmed, was an MTC bus driver who was often around during the day due to working split shifts. Their daughter, daughter Amina, was three years older than Christiana. Their son, Omar, was born seven months before Andrew. Amina and Omar were Christiana and Andrew's best friends. However, that beautiful summer day soon took an unsettling turn. As we were walking to the car from Khadijah's house, Christiana looked up at me and said, Mommy, what does it mean to be black? As most parents do when confronted with a difficult question, I stalled for time by posing a question of my own. Why are you asking that, honey? In addition to buying time to think, I was genuinely curious as to what had prompted Christiana's inquiry. Christiana explained to me that they had been swimming at the Lynnhurst pool that day and that she had been playing with two little boys in, her, in a corner of the pool where a jet shoots water up into the air. When she started to cross the pool to return to the side where Amina, Omar, and Andrew were, the younger boy asked her why she was going over there. She said, to play with my friends. And the older boy, who she thought was about her age, said, but they're black. After Christiana's explanation, I still didn't know what to say. I remember thinking that because Ahmed and Khadijah had converted to Islam, Amina was in the pool covered from head to toe. I think I was surprised that this little boy had focused on skin color as opposed to someone swimming with all their clothes on. I honestly don't remember how I answered Christiana's question. I think I said something about skin colors varying with different people and that this little boy had called Amina and Omar black because their skin was dark like their daddy's. Perhaps I explained that Amin's ancestors, who came from Africa many years ago, would have had dark skin too. And I may have said that for some reason I didn't understand. People responded to people differently because of the color of their skin. Like many of you in this congregation, I am a child of the 60s. I was 14 years old when the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show and attended my first vigil as an 18-year-old college freshman when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. I protested the killings at Kent State in 1970 while reading books like Black Like Me and the autobiography of Malcolm X and attending presentations by Dennis Banks and Russell Means about their founding of the American Indian Movement. I started law school in 1971, the same year Gloria Steinem founded Ms. Magazine. Women and people of color were less than 10% of the law school population, and our newly formed Women's Caucus partnered with BALSA, the Black Law Students Association, on a number of issues. 
After graduating from law school, I started practicing with one of the few female attorneys in Minnesota, and probably the only openly lesbian one at that time, who was handling a major discrimination suit against the University of Minnesota. I share that information with you this morning because despite those and other experiences I had with civil rights, I still struggled to answer Christiana's question. I also struggled in my relationships with people of color over the years. I remember particularly conversations during the 1990s with a client of mine. Janelle was an African-American chaplain at a prestigious liberal arts college in Northfield, Minnesota who talked to me about her frustrations living and working in an all-white environment where there was no black culture, no other people of color for colleagues or friends, and no acknowledgement of the difficulties that posed for her. She shared the pain of constant daily slights, like not being able to get a cab in New York City, despite being a well-dressed woman who was less than five feet tall. I listened to Janelle and tried to be supportive, but often felt like I didn't know what to say. Even worse than not knowing how to re respond was my fear that anything I said might seem uncaring, unhelpful, or my greatest fear, racist. One, year, one day when I mustered up the courage to ask if there was anything I could do, Janelle's answer surprised me. You could listen better, she said. Listen better, I thought. How will that help change your world? I wanted something concrete, something specific, that would prove to her I was a good friend, or at least not a racist person. By not understanding what she was really saying, hear me and my story. See not only my pain, but my resiliency and my strength. I limited the depth and authenticity of our friendship. In July of 2012, nearly 30 years after Christiana had asked her question, I joined the church board again. One might say I'm a glutton for punishment, but there we are. I hadn't paid much attention to race the previous 10 years or so because, as so often happens with white people, I was just living my life. I was no longer working. I had no significant relationships with people of color. And issues of race just weren't on my radar on a regular basis. So when Justin stated in his November 2012 minister's report to the board that, quote, we will be holding trainings and learning opportunities for staff, board, and others to deepen our understanding of racism. This is a multi-year, multi-decade project that we're beginning this year. It will be important to have the board involved and committed to this work and this journey. End of quote. I was somewhere between puzzled and disinterested. As a new board member, but one with a long institutional memory, I was more invested in strengthening our governance and financial systems than I was in deepening my, in my understanding of racism. Because I was on the board, though, I signed up for the first 24-hour racial justice training in the fall of 2013. I learned some things that first Saturday that made sense to me. That feeling guilt, shame, or blame makes it difficult for white people to be open to racial justice work. That there is a difference between diversity, cultural competence, 
and racial equity, and that equality and equity are not the same. Despite those revelations, though, I still wasn't convinced I needed 24 hours of training and wasn't terribly disappointed when I got sick before the second all-day session. Missing the second session meant I had to start over when the next 24-hour training was offered, which wouldn't be until the spring. But I wasn't off the hook yet. Justin asked Heather Hackman, our racial justice trainer, to do a Saturday working session with the board in January of 2014. Being somewhere by 8 a.m. on a freezing January morning wasn't on my top 10 list either, but I dutifully showed up. When Heather said that morning, though, that racial justice is a spiritual imperative for Unitarian Universalists as people of faith, it was like the cobweb suddenly cleared out of my head and my heart. When I heard those words, I realized that racial justice is a spiritual imperative for me. That imperative flows from my core beliefs that there is a spark of the divine in each of us, a light in every human heart that is deserving of protection. And that, as our universalist forebearers stated so clearly, God's love saves all of us. My core beliefs are also re reflected in our Unitarian Universalist principles or tenets, which you use hold as strong values and moral guides. The first of these tenets is the inherent worth and dignity of every human being. The second is justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. If I believe we are all endowed with inherent worth and dignity, and deserving of love, justice, equity, and compassion, then racial justice, justice for all, regardless of skin color, is a spiritual imperative for me. I've been a member of this church for 40 years now, so have been reciting a covenant of our faith for four decades. As you know, our congregation has no shared creed, we don't recite an I believe statement on Sunday morning. But UU churches and our wider association are covenantal communities, bound together by the shared commitments we make to each other and to our beloved community. The words of the covenant we recite every Sunday morning have changed over the years I've been here. But the covenant has always, always been grounded in love. That love is everywhere in our faith statements, in our mission which says, in the universalist spirit of love and faith, we give, receive, and grow. In the Sunday morning covenant, we just recited that love is the spirit of this church. In our oft-repeated statement that we need not think alike to love alike. And in our history of standing on the side of love, in our work for justice. Because we have no shared creed, the source of that love can be different for every you, you. But our covenant to be bound together through that love is what makes us people of faith as you use. Another part of the covenant we say every Sunday is to seek the truth in love. 
Some of the greatest challenges I faced over the years have been to love someone or something, a person, a memory, a tradition, and still be willing to seek the truth about that person or thing. Seeking the truth in love is, in my experience, even harder work than just seeking the truth, but it's critical to our faith journey. As our theme for this summer says, at the intersection of what is holy and what is human is a willingness to change, to shed old ways of thinking, to tell a new story. Seeking the truth in love requires us, in the case of racial justice, to shed old ways of thinking and change through learning a new story. Only then can we tell a new story. So how do we go about seeking the truth in love about whiteness and white privilege so that we can tell a new story of race? I've learned some things over the past few years that have helped me to do that. First, I've worked to let go of the guilt and shame I carry as a white person and replace it with, as Justin has often said, curiosity and open heart and compassion for myself and others. Second, I've had to learn the hard way that seeking the truth in love about race, whiteness, and white privilege is complicated and messy. Operating as we do out of old belief systems and assumptions, we will make mistakes, no matter how intentioned, well-intentioned we are. I know, I've made plenty of them. So the third thing I've learned is it's really important to be able to say, Again, without guilt or shame, I'm sorry, or I wish I'd handled that differently, or even, can we start again? As a board, we'd, we've had to revisit some decisions we made this year because we made them with inadequate information or without using a racial justice lens. Revisiting those decisions has been time-consuming and messy. But despite the complications and messiness, the missteps and mistakes, the most important thing I've learned is that there is an amazing grace in being held by a beloved community that allows us to make mistakes and still begin again in love. Compassion for ourselves and others, being in deep relationship and in community with each other, transforms the less than thoughtful comment the decision made without the right process, the information that should have come to light sooner, from merely painful or difficult moments to times of giving, receiving, and growing. I've learned to shed old ways of thinking through laughter, lots of conversation, sometimes tears, and always enough compassion from others and myself to begin again, and again, and again in love. As UU Minister Joseph Cherry said in our reading this morning, quote, if we have any hope of transforming the world and changing ourselves, we must be bold enough to step into our discomfort, brave enough to be clumsy there, loving enough to forgive ourselves and others. My experience over the last 40 years is that many UUs, myself included, like to be right and like to do things right the first time. Because of that, being uncomfortable, wrong, 
clumsy or in need of forgiveness aren't easy places for us to land. But in the end, as Reverend Cherry says, being willing to step into those places is the only thing that will change us and transform the world. Being on the board has also given me a wonderful opportunity to talk with many of you about the new story of race that is emerging from this congregation. Some white congregants are frustrated by what they see as a focus on racial justice to the exclusion of other issues that have been of long-standing concern to this congregation. I have learned from one of my best teachers at church that being explicit about race is not the same as being exclusively focused on race. We have to be clear, explicit, if you will, in recognizing and acknowledging that the institutional systems in this country, whether government, education, housing, the environment, corporate America, or even this church, are essentially systems of white power. But that explicitness does not mean that racial justice is the only issue we are committed to as a congregation, as our work in environmental, housing, and GLBT rights makes abundantly clear. Many older, white, long-term congregants like me have also wondered if this racial justice work is any different from the work they've been committed to for decades. Other questions are, I've heard are, where are we going as a congregation, and what can we do to make a difference? I don't pretend to have the answers to those questions, but I can share my perspective. I've come to understand that the racial justice work we are doing today is different than the civil rights work of the 60s and 70s because of its explicit focus on the system of white privilege. My not seeing or acknowledging that system was what Janelle was trying to tell me all those years ago, what limited the depth and meaningness of our relationship. Now that I can see it, I've had to acknowledge how much I don't understand about it and learn to listen and learn with humility, curiosity, and openness. The issue of where we're going as a congregation and what each of us can do to help us get there is one that I've struggled with, too. Like a lot of you use, I like to use information to create clarity and develop an action plan. That's hard to do at this point in our racial justice congregational journey. Especially today, during Pride Weekend, I'm reminded again of the great work this congregation did in helping to defeat the marriage amendment and to pass the right to marry law. What's different here, though, is that there's no clear focus like those things afforded us. In addition, the pervasiveness of racial justice inequities in Minnesota, whether you're looking at housing, education, mental health, employment, health care, income, you name it, can make charting a course of action feel overwhelming and daunting. In part for that reason, I think our racial justice journey has sometimes felt like a walk in the woods where we are guided primarily by our compass setting. The path is full of twists and turns that limit our ability to see where we're going and is laden with downed trees, rocks, and other obstacles. 
What makes the journey easier, though, is we are walking together. We know our compass heading is guiding us to our destination, and we have tools to help us clear the path. My best tools of late have been the spiritual deepening circle the board has become for me and learning more about the history of race in this country. As with all issues in this church, and I know this from having been here for 40 years, where our racial justice journey takes us as a congregation will ultimately be determined by the congregation. For those of you who would like to get involved now, there are two easily available avenues. One is volunteering with any of our seven faithful action partner organizations. Those organizations are doing great work in housing, homelessness, the environment, and other important issues with a sensitivity to issues of whiteness and white privilege. There are also numerous opportunities at church to continue to seek the truth and love about issues of race. You can join a spiritual deepening circle focused on a racial justice issue, attend a film showing and discussion, or participate in a four-hour distilled version of the 24-hour training. There's information about these opportunities under the Justice tab on our website. And maybe there's one more question for some of us, which is, does racial justice really matter that much? In sharing earlier with you why it is a spiritual imperative for me as a Unitarian Universalist, I referenced our Universalist forebearers' faith that God's love saves everyone. Salvation isn't a comfortable word for a lot of you use, but its definition is the act of saving or protecting from harm, risk, or loss. As Justin said in a recent liberal article, quote, we are on this racial justice journey because our faith fully realized requires it, and because we know our collective wholeness and salvation is wrapped up in dismantling the systems of racial oppression that this country is founded on and that white people continue to benefit from, end quote. Racial justice work is the only way we can protect and save all of us, white people and people of color, from continuing harm, risk, or loss. Mommy, what does it mean to be black? If I were responding to Christiana's question today, I would tell her that as white people, we can't know the answer to that question, but that we could talk about what it means to be white. For us as people of faith and Unitarian Universalists, I think the real question is, how do we live out the covenant that places love at the center of our faith. That journey requires us to be bold enough to seek the truth in love, brave enough to make mistakes, and loving enough to apologize and forgive with humility. In this way, we can begin again in love with each other in community to create a new story of race. May it be so, and amen.